One of the things that um, our culture, I think it's beyond our country, I think it's human nature, is we always like to find somebody to blame. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, and when those two um, entered into that disobedience of God, they were always trying to find, it's like, you know, she looked at Adam and said, it's his fault. And he looked at Eve and said, it's, it's her fault. And we've been doing that ever since. Uh, I, I was raised to believe that all ill comes from Hollywood, um, that everything out of Hollywood is terrible. And you put Disney together with that, and it's like, meh, that and Bud Light, and we got a you know, trifesta of you know, sin and debauchery. I, I, I don't know if we realize it. We, we were really trained to find blame. We were trained to make sure somebody else knows it was their fault. 38 years, I'm not sure if I can remember a couple walking into my office and saying, you know what, we're in real trouble. And one of them taking the lead and saying, it's really me. You can spend time talking to her, but it's me. I'm the issue. We, we We can see sin in other people's lives so much easier. And so we, I think we were trained. We were trained to minimize and to find blame and to, and so we even have confessions that sound a little bit like this. Uh, benevolent and easygoing father, we have occasionally been guilty of errors of judgment. We have lived under the deprivations of heredity and the disadvantages of environment, in particular our parents. We have sometimes failed to act in accordance with common sense. We have done the best that we could in the circumstances, and we have been careful not to ignore the common standards of decency. And we are glad to think that we are fairly normal. Do thou, O Lord, deal lightly with our infrequent lapses. Be thine own sweet self with those who admit that they are not perfect according to the unlimited tolerance which we have the right to expect from thee. And grant as an indulgent parent that we may hereafter continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect and our normal life. I think we are trained. We are trained to be like that. Just like none of us had to be taught the word mine. We had to be trained to be thankful. But our culture, by nature, and it's not just our country, it's human nature, is I've got to find somebody to blame other than me. David's life is a conundrum. It truly is. Uh, He will perplex you. You don't know what to do with the guy. I mean, God has these lavish, lavish affirmations of David. David is a man after my own heart. It's like, who would not want that? Well, Yeah, until your daughter brings home a guy like David and said, well, introduce me to your fiance, honey. It's like, oh, yeah, he's a great guy. Just want you to know, mom, um, we're going to get married. He probably will have multiple affairs, but I'm going to forgive him of that. He is going to murder a couple of people, but because of who he is, and the fact is he makes a ton of money. Oh, that's good. And and he's going to lose a couple of the children that I'm going to bear because of his sinfulness. And the other sons that he has with other women, well, to be honest with you, they're going to be murderers just like him. I want you to meet my fiance. <laughs> what do you do with him? Why would God say of this guy, he's a man after my heart? 
I think it might be because of this psalm. I think this psalm in many ways tells us what it is that God sees in this man and what God longs to see in every man, yes, and every woman. When David says towards the end of it, verse 17, the sacrifices of God, in other words, what God longs for from us is not burnt offerings, not tithes, but what God longs to see from us is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. That's what the Lord delights in. Why? Because there's hope. There's immense hope when we are willing to be honest about who we are and let God transform us. Where do we begin? How do we journey with this man? Because David teaches us how to respond when the Holy Spirit convicts us. It's me, God. The reason why my marriage struggles, it's me. The reason why my children don't wish me a Father's Day happy, it's me. I interacted not long ago with a dad. His entire family is a wreck. By every standard that you would use, it's a wreck. And in my 30-minute monologue that he spoke to me, not once did he own a thing. Not once. His ex, yep. Children, except for the one that stayed faithful to him. What he didn't do is what David does. And this is where there's hope. Where do we begin? Well, we have to start where we are. That's what David teaches us. He started with God, have mercy on me. Why did he say that? Because he had come to the Father and he had come to the conclusion that God, something's deeply broken and it's me. Jim Collins in his marvelous book, Good to Great, makes this statement, true transformation, whether of an organization or an individual, demands an uncommon willingness to confront the brutal facts. That's where you have to start. I had a friend, Paul, that I'd done a number of church consultations with where we go in and we get all the data of the church over the last three, four, five years. And, and, and we're looking at the data of this church. We interview all kinds of people. And then we come to a conclusion of what are the strengths of that church and what are the weaknesses of that church and then prescriptions for that church to become this disciple-making church. One church we went into, um, we were kind of going through the process and there was an individual self-proclaimed. He was kind of the leader of the church, not the pastor, but he was clearly the man that everyone kind of like looked over for the permission to speak and Paul in a moment finally turns to the guy as he's kind of throwing up some resistance to some of the prescriptions that Paul was uh, giving to him and and Paul looks at him and just squares up right at him and he says sir you need to understand when I look at your church you are sick and disobedient. And if you're the leader of this church, you need, need to either change or resign. Man, the air got sucked out of that room. There wasn't a person in that room that was breathing. They were like waiting for this guy to either erupt or just crumble under this. 
but it's true. If you haven't baptized anyone in three years and you haven't led anyone to Christ and you're going on thinking that you're a healthy church, somebody needs to tell you you're sick and disobedient. And Paul did on that day. And that's where Paul or David was. He wasn't trying to push God back. He wasn't trying to rationalize. He wasn't trying to justify. After all, father has a lot to carry on being a king. And, and I got a couple of other rebellious sons. And after all, the, the wife that you've given me, well, she's not always, you know, well, Lord, you know the story. He doesn't bring any of that to God. He was brutal. And he was honest. I also like Dallas Willard's statement when he says the greatest obstacle to effective progress today is a simple failure to understand and acknowledge the reality of the human situation. We must start from where we really are. That's where you have to start today. Maybe this is the day, it was Father's Day and you're coming to church, but but maybe this is the day that God says, "I, I brought you to church just for this. I want you to start with where you're at. And sometimes to do that, like in David's life, we need a really good friend. Now, it may not feel that way, but the scripture says the wounds of a friend prove to be faithful. You probably know the story of David. What's behind this psalm? It's in the heading right above the psalm. It would take you back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. David is at the palace. He should be out fighting the war. His soldiers are. And that's one of the things that made David so great is that his soldiers would die for him. One day he's out there at the palace and he looks down on on kind of this, this mezzanine and he sees this woman and she's beautiful and she's bathing and David looks at her. Don't think that's a sin. What was a sin is he went to an attendant and said, please go get her. He brings this woman up to him. He has sex with her. She gets pregnant. And now David is in a mess. He is in a mess. She's pregnant. Now, how's he going to explain this? So he devises in his scheming little mind, I'm going to go get Uriah, the husband, bring him back. They'll get together and no one will know whose kid that is. Well, Uriah, unlike David, not leaving. I'm here. So David now has another problem. What does he do? He arranges Uriah's death. Now he's got a huge issue. He's had an affair with a woman. He got her husband killed. And God comes to David and says, hey, you're going to be disciplined for this. In chapter 12, it tells us the story of Nathan. Nathan is an incredible friend to David. It takes a lot of courage to be honest with your friend. It does. It takes a lot of courage to come and confront a friend and say, hey, I just want to talk to you about some things I'm seeing in your life. And the reason you would do that is because for all of us, it's infinitely easier for us to see the sin in another person's life than our own. We tend to start managing it and doing all kinds of things. But Nathan risked everything, most notably his life. Because it would not have been uncommon for a king, much like we hear today in the Middle East, where somebody gets upset at their brother and they have him killed. 
It was true. David easily could have had somebody killed. He could have wiped them out. And Nathan goes to him and he tells him a story about a wealthy man who takes advantage of a shepherd, a farmer, who has infinitely less. And this rich person takes something from this poor farmer And David hears this story and he sees with anger and he says, I'd kill that man. Nathan looks at David and says, David, you are that man. That was the biggest gut punch in the world. But if Nathan wouldn't have had the courage to do that, I think David would have just continued to try and put things in place and take care of things and manufacture stuff and maybe bring some additional offerings to the Lord and maybe serve God and maybe go into another war to please God. He would have been into sin management at the highest level. But a friend came to him and said, David, God sees you and I see you. We all need those friends. They're not easy to come by. Some of you don't have them and you need to pray that God would give you those kind of people. Because we all need them. The godliest of people need them. Peter, he's a great guy. I know we like to be hard on Peter. You know, it's like he's impulsive and he denied Christ. Okay, let's be honest. Go out to the Willamette and take two steps and then come back and condemn Peter. The guy walked on water. We all get wet when we have 0.05 inches of rain this morning. Peter wasn't perfect, but he was a man of great faith and courage and strength. But there was a moment in his life after he had led a number of people to Christ and he was part of launching the gospel, that peer pressure, and that can get us. It's not just at 15 and 17 that peer pressure gets us. It's at 40 and 45. And Peter started to slide back into his Judaism and he was kind of twisting the gospel and kind of listening to his friends and forgetting the the gospel of grace. And, And all of a sudden, Paul had to walk in on him when he's having some fellowship with his Jewish brothers and say, Peter, who's bewitched you? You've twisted the gospel, friend. And apart from Paul doing that, I wonder where Peter would have landed. I wonder if Peter would have been crucified, as history tells us, quite possibly upside down. I wonder if Peter would have been the person, had not Paul, in his guts and strength, gone to his friend and said, you've twisted the gospel. I wonder if Timothy would have finished had not Paul gone to him because Timothy was coming to that point where the heaviness of pastoring was just getting to him and he was wearing out. And so he started rationalizing why maybe he chose the wrong vocation. Maybe he should sell some insurance or do something. And so he was kind of like, "Ah, I don't know. And, you know, I'm kind of young to be leading a church. Don't think I should. And, you know, I'm not as, as theologically equipped as the apostle Paul. And he was bringing up all of these good reasons why he should jump ship Paul comes to his friend and says my my dear brother I was there when we laid hands on you I haven't forgotten it and don't you forget it 
I was there when God spoke about your life. You're not in this as a pastor because you woke up one day and said, hey, this seems like a really nice vocation. You're in it because God has a calling on your life. Don't walk away from that. It's not something for you to choose, Timothy. I was there. I heard the word of God. I wonder if Paul hadn't spoken to Timothy, if Ephesus would have had a different pastor. Sometimes it's way easier to see sin in another person's life than you're in your own. And that's why you need a good friend who comes to you and helps you understand how to take the path towards power and renewal. What does it look like? You have to have that friend that comes in and speaks to you. But at some point, dear brothers and sisters, you have to decide, am I going to get honest with God? And the first step that David comes to is the willingness to allow God to be the one who forgives him. Dear God, have mercy on me. It's not God, I'm going to change my life. It's not God, I'm going to get things right. It's not God, I'm going to serve you better. It's not God, I, I'm, I'm done with affairs. God, I, I'm no more porn on my phone. None of that. You have to be willing to come to the place where you say like David, God, have mercy on me. Please, Father, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Why does he say that? Because you can't do it. If you could have done it, Jesus wouldn't have needed to go to the cross. He says in verse 7, please cleanse me with hyssop. And then I will be clean. Wash me. And then I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, verse 10. And please renew a steadfast spirit within me. I love that phrase. Create in me a pure heart. Give me pure desires. Let me look at things and long for that which honors you and blesses you and is beautiful. Not, not that which is a stench, that which wounds a woman, that which leads to a husband's death. Give me the kind of desires that I can look at and, and I can say, yes, that will bless God, that will honor God. God, I, I need you to do that. I need you to change the appetites of my heart. The first step in this path of power and renewal is to throw yourself on the mercy of God. That's where Paul or David begins. God, I, I am broken. I'm busted and I need you to do something in my life that I can't do. But it doesn't stop there. Because the next step, and they're, they're virtually almost simultaneous, is that you have to come to the place where you admit your guilt. In, in a strange way, David says something that you, you might misunderstand if you first look at it. Verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When I first read this when I was a kid, I thought, are you kidding me? Bathsheba, you sinned against her. Uriah, he's dead. 
Absalom, your other son, you're going to turn him into a murderer. I mean, think about it. I guarantee you it got back to the soldiers. And these soldiers who would do anything for David, they would die for David. They would risk their lives for David. And now they hear that their commander-in-chief set one of their leaders up just to cover his sin at home. Are you kidding me? David, we're not following a guy that will spear us in the back. It's one thing to take on the Philistines. It's another thing to have my commander-in-chief throw a spear in my back. When I first looked at this, I was like, God, he's missing a lot. But listen carefully. If your confession is real, most likely it will start off with the person on this earth that you have wounded. Your wife, your children, your boss. It's the person who catches you. But when confession hits to the place where you plead with God, cleanse me, you've come to the place where David has. It's not that he's dismissing these people that he's wounded. It's that David understands the greatest offense. Father is you. You who sent your son to die on a cross, I have spit at his blood. I have set it aside as if it It meant nothing to you. I have rejected that which costs you your son's life. You have to come to that place where you're willing to admit, God, I've, I've sinned against you. We have to come to that place where we realize that I may have gotten away with it and other people didn't catch me, but God has been with me every step of the way and every sin I've committed and every time I've lied and every moment that I've justified. And God, you have seen it all. And in that moment, I recognize I've sinned against you. When a person gets caught, Almost inevitably, a spouse, a church, is going to ask the question, how do we know if this repentance and this confession is real? I can't tell you how many times I've sat across the table with a wife to say, can I really trust, Mark, what my husband is saying? I don't disregard that question. It's a good one. But be cautious with it. When I have been a part of churches where we're restoring leaders, we'll remove a leader for a time. And the congregation will ask, or the bishop will ask, or it's... The seminary will ask, as I've been a part of a couple of those, how do you know if this repentance is real? And we always try to put those things in place, those steps. But here's the danger that I've noticed. Over the years, that person can start playing to us rather than the father. And what I've noticed is there are people whose repentance is maybe on the edge, 
But what they get trapped into is trying to please the one that they wounded, trying to please the one that caught them, instead of coming to the Father and saying to him, please purify my heart, cleanse me, God, wash me white as snow. And the danger I've seen, and I would just caution, it's not that the question is wrong. How do I know? But here's the deal, is you and I aren't God. We may never know. Why? Because I can't read their heart. All I can tell them is the only hope you've got is if you come to grips with the fact that yes, you've sinned against your husband. Yes, you've sinned against your children, but you have ultimately sinned against the father and you have to come to him because he's the only hope that can change the appetite of your soul. God, give me a pure heart. Am I against those accountability factors? No. Am I against having your wife look at your phone? Not at all. But never forget. I can have the best accountability partners in the world, but they don't have access to my heart. They can't change it. They can't give me a new appetite. And the only way I get that is if I come in the honesty of my heart and say to my father, I'm broken, I'm done, I'm sick of lying. And I will invite men into the honesty of my heart as David does. And the path towards power and renewal has taken the most significant step that it can. And when it does, God wants to meet you gladly with the gift of mercy. What does that gift of mercy look like? Well, there's a score of things here. Let me highlight three of them. Look at verse six. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You desire honesty. And God, would you teach me wisdom in the inmost place? Don't waste this portion of my life where I've dishonored you. Teach me, instruct me. Don't let me move on as if this is some little trite jaunt through sin. Give me wisdom to see. Help me see God where the enemy is lying. Help me see everything about it. Give me understanding of my own life and how I may have rationalized my own sin. Teach me. Because I want to be a different person on the other side of this. What does mercy look like? It's the gift of God's mercy that cleanses us. It's the gift of God's mercy that is like hyssop that comes over us. It's the gift of God's mercy that gives us a pure heart. It's the gift of God's mercy that renews a steadfast spirit within me. What is a steadfast spirit? It is that strength to look temptation straight in the eye and say no. A steadfast spirit is that ability in Timothy's life to carry the weight of something that feels like it's going to crush you and say, God, you've given me grace for this day. I will honor you today and tomorrow you will have grace for tomorrow. It's that I will not quit spirit. 
And you need that when temptation is in front of you. You need that when the calling God has put on your life is heavy. You need that when your future seems uncertain and you are wanting to move horizontal or back and forth. And you need that to stay put and say, God, I'm going to stay here. Give me that steadfast spirit. That's mercy. And that's the reason why the scripture says that, God, your mercies are new every morning. Why? Because you're not going to be given tomorrow's grace today. You're going to be given the grace to honor God today. And when you wake up tomorrow, whatever tomorrow holds, you'll be given grace for that day, but not today. The Lord teaches you, live in the moment. Give me this day my, your daily bread, Lord. Give me this day the grace, the steadfast spirit to remain. That's mercy. Give me the ability to believe, God, that I'm forgiven. Carl Menninger, well-known psychiatrist, who I would just note is not a believer. It's not a Christ follower. But he makes a really fascinating statement. It's almost like he, he wants to be a believer. He said one time, he said, 75% of my clients would never have to come back and see me if I could convince them of one thing. And that is that God wants to forgive them. Not a Christ follower, but insightful. And I think it's true. 75% of my clients, he said, would never have to walk back in that door if I could convince them that God has forgiven them. I wonder what it would do to the body of Christ, our church and others, if we could help people truly embrace the fact that God has cleansed them. God has removed their sin. God has made them new. God wants to give them a new appetite. That's mercy, instruction, renewal, and recommissioning. Verse 13, God, when you restore to me the joy of your salvation, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners are going to turn back to you. I don't know if you would have voted for David's restoration. I don't know if you would have voted for Peter's restoration. Sometimes I wonder. But God's mercy doesn't stop at eliminating the penalty of your sin. God's mercy doesn't stop at making you justified and right with God. God doesn't stop at, at, at a mere spreadsheet change of your relationship with God. God takes you like he did Peter. When Jesus comes up to Peter, Peter has denied him three times. Peter's made a wreck of his life. Peter was going back to the only thing he had success at at fishing. And Jesus comes up to him and says, Peter, do you love me? And through just tears of shame, yes, Lord, I do. I'm sorry I failed you. Jesus looks at him again and says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, I told you. I mean, I just, you just answered that question. You got some you know, dementia issues? Yes, Lord, I love you. And I think just to get under this guy's skin and to drive home a point, Jesus says to him again, Peter, do you love me? Yes. 
do. Then I want you to commit five years of penance and then I'll decide whether or not I don't want to use you. I want you to go five years, Peter, with never lying once, and then I'll decide whether or not I want to insert you back into the kingdom of God to make a difference. No. Peter, do you love me? Yes. All right. Go feed my sheep. Me? You want me? Yeah. I'm going to build the church. And upon your confession of the gospel, I'm going to build a church that is going to expand the right. Me? You want to use me? Have we forgot about the rooster? I can't even eat chicken the rest of my life because it reminds me of what I did. What is mercy? It is the mercy to instruct us and not waste those years where we have denied God and we have struggled. God won't waste them. He will instruct you and he will teach you, but he will cleanse you and he will forgive you. And, but the ultimate end of mercy is he will restore you to your calling. Make no mistake, my friends, sin can hurt a man's calling. Sin can sully a woman's gift and her calling but when we're restored when we're renewed and we walk in the presence of Christ and we've pleaded with him oh God please cleanse me the father looks at you and says let's get to work I want to use you Jesus comes to Peter Paul comes to Timothy, God comes to Elijah after he was trying to, you know, devise a, a real noble way to commit his own suicide and, and be done with life because of the fear of Jezebel. And he comes and he's, oh God, I know all of the prophets have fallen and I want to fall. I want out of here. And God looks at us and he looks at you and he says, dear friend, God has the power to make what is broken, beautiful and healthy. And he doesn't just do it in people in the text of scripture. He does it at 395 Marion Street to people who decided to go to church today who needed to hear that God's not done with you. And you don't have to spend the rest of your life giving penance. You don't have to spend the rest of your life trying to make up for. You can't do it. You have to cry out to God, God, would you cleanse me? And the father looks at you and says, yes, I delight in doing that. Now, let's go get to work. Oh, is there a proper pathway of restoration and trust building? Yeah. A person who has truly confessed to the Lord never demands trust. A person who is truly repentant of their sin never demands trust but those of us who are restoring people let's make sure that we act with them the way God did with David the way Christ did with Peter his mercies are new and they move you from confession to renewal to cleansing, 
to commissioning. That's where mercy finds its completion in your life. And that's why for you this morning there's hope. Because God has the power to make what was broken beautiful and healthy. So let me ask you a few thoughts. When you received God's mercy, did you believe it? Did you really believe it? Your worship isn't motivated by a deep adoration of God. Your joy is it sustained rather than experiencing moments of happiness. Your giving, does it come from a generous heart? Or do you approach giving to the church like you do paying off your car at the local bank? I'm going to hopefully pay this off one day and have God happy with me. His mercy is new. Not new in the fact that it's never been around. It's new because he has new mercy today for you. And he has power to make that which was broken, us, beautiful. If there's one area that I would love to be known in our city, oh, there's a few probably, but this would be one. If you want to be restored, go to First B. If you want to have people embrace you, not shine your sin away, but embrace you through the process of renewal to the place of recommissioning, they believe in the power and the mercy of God. But dear friend, to get to the mercy, you have to be honest. You have to come clean. Because God loves most a broken and a contrite heart.